You're listening to Undisciplined on Utah Public Radio. I'm Reagan Edelman, and I'm here with my little brother. Hi, I'm Rocky. I'm a big dino nerd and an enthusiast of paleontology. Today, me and Rocky are talking to Nizar Ibrahim. He's a paleontologist and a senior lecturer of paleontology at the University of Portsmouth. Over the past several years, he's led expeditions in search of new fossil specimens. We're talking about the potential of subaqueous habits of dinosaurs such as the Spinosaurus and Baryonyx. Yeah, my name is Nizar Ibrahim. I'm a paleontologist and a comparative anatomist. I am also a National Geographic explorer and uh, a senior lecturer in paleontology at the University of Portsmouth. So to start, what's the big idea? Can you give us like a brief overview of what it was that you wrote? (laughs) Well, um, not quite sure how brief it's going to be, but (laughs) basically, um, you know, we uh, looked at the internal bone structure of uh, many different kinds of animals, living and extinct. Um, And we found out that uh, um, animals that spend a lot of time underwater, um, hunting prey underwater, for example, uh, have unusually dense bones. So dense bones are important in buoyancy control. And we found out that um, a couple of dinosaurs, um, in particular a very large predatory dinosaur called Spinosaurus, spent a lot of time underwater pursuing prey um, in a, you know aquatic fashion, essentially. And that's kind of a big deal because we usually thought of dinosaurs as uh, land-dwelling animals. So there has been that general assumption that most non-avian dinosaurs were restricted to land. Can you explain to me why that assumption existed? And then will you tell me about the specimen that helped you challenge that assumption? Sure. So... It's basically, um, you know, it's been the prevailing dogma in in dinosaur paleontology for many, many years. Um, There was a time when we thought that some dinosaurs may have been aquatic just because they were so large, um, some of the big long-necked dinosaurs, but then we found out that they were actually terrestrial animals. Um, There was a time when we used to think that some of the so-called duck-billed dinosaurs may have been spending some time in the water, but again, we found out that they are really... um, terrestrial animals. And so the idea of, of aquatic dinosaurs just, um, you know, was out of fashion. And, and also there was, uh, you know, basically a general consensus that dinosaurs, yes, they were very successful, um, but they were really restricted to life on land. And some of them um, eventually uh, took flight. You know, we know that uh, birds are dinosaurs, um, but they never invaded the aquatic world and that always i always thought that that was kind of odd right if you're so successful for such a long time um you know why would you not also invade the aquatic world i mean after all other groups of animals have done so um i always thought that that was uh you know a little strange and i always felt that maybe you know dinosaurs were a lot more diverse than uh, <laughs> you know we sometimes give them credit for but anyway so um the key to um, you know, challenging this dogma was really the description of a very, very strange predatory dinosaur, Spinosaurus, uh, which is in, in many ways the holy grail of dinosaur paleontology. <laughs> You're like the Spinosaurus guy. That's how that's how I was introduced to you. I was I heard that you were the king of the of the uh, Spinosaurids and <laughs> that you were the guy to talk to about the Spinosaurus. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, <laughs> um, yes, I guess I am the Spinosaurus guy. Uh, the, 
it's 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 i mean there are two two interesting things i would say about that the first is that of course you know i've worked at so many different things you know i work on fossil snakes and oh that's and, so cool uh, you know fossil fish and different kinds of flying reptiles and big plant-eating dinosaurs i also published a few papers in the field of bioinformatics you know i i, I did a lot of anatomy work i was also teaching human anatomy um, so I've done all of those other things, but at the end of the day, you know, to most people, like, oh yeah, it's the Spinosaurus guy. I think people are just so enticed by the Spinosaurus that it's hard yeah, to get that out I of mean, their the, heads. The, the, yeah, the truth is Spinosaurus, of course, towers over everything else and just <laughs> overshadows everything else. So that's okay. I mean, you know, there are worse things to be known for, right? <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty cool. It's kind of the, the coolest predatory dinosaur. The Spinosaurus is only known from one associated skeleton. So there's only one um, actual Spinosaurus skeleton in the entire world, right? You know, I'm describing it, I'm, I'm working on it. So in that sense, <laughs> yes, that's really, I'm the only person you can really talk to. <laughs> it's just the one skeleton. The, uh, the story of Spinosaurus is, is actually unusual. It's not your typical dinosaur story where, you know, someone finds a few bones, names a new dinosaur. It's a, it's a pretty dramatic story. I mean, the first remains of Spinosaurus were found over a century ago, and they were discovered by uh, a very talented uh, fossil hunter, fossil digger, Richard Markgraf. And he was excavating fossils in uh, Egypt, amongst other places, for a pioneering German paleontologist called Ernst Stromer, who had also done um, quite a bit of field work in Egypt in the past. And uh, some of the bones he uncovered uh, belonged to, to dinosaurs. And he had those fossils shipped to Munich, uh, where uh, Ernst Stromer was working. And one of the animals um, Stromer named and described subsequently was Spinosaurus. And Spinosaurus really stood out. It was, um, you know, a dinosaur like no other. Uh, you could tell from the bones that it was a very large animal, maybe even bigger than T-Rex, which had only recently been described from North America. <laughs> but more importantly, it was a very strange alien-looking dinosaur. The specimen is no longer around because Stroma was living in dangerous times. He was a very successful scientist, but then everything changed in, in World War II. He also lost pretty much all of his scientific work, which was uh, uh, destroyed in an uh, Allied air raid um, over Munich. And the uh, museum just uh, was just completely destroyed, burned down. Um, and most of the uh, incredible fossils from uh, North Africa, from the Sahara, Stroma had described, destroyed, including all of the bones of Spinosaurus. Um, and so that's why this new skeleton, which my team has been excavating for the last few years, is so special. Um, it comes from a different part of the Sahara. Um, it is more complete than the original find. Um, it overlaps with the original find. When we started piecing together the whole animal, um, it was like working on an extraterrestrial, right? It was just uh, a really strange creature nothing like a T-Rex or, you know, really any of the other dinosaurs we know. And one of the really cool things we found out about this animal was that it had many telltale signs of a largely aquatic lifestyle. That's How excited were you when you found out some of those remains had been discovered? Well, it was a pretty incredible feeling. But then, of course, you know, um, I think the 
one of the key moments came in uh, 2018, actually, when we were back at the dig site and many of my colleagues, several of my colleagues thought that there was not much left to, to uncover. But I kind of had this gut feeling that, um, you know, the most important part of the skeleton might still be hidden um, under the rocks. And so we removed uh, many tons of rock to get to the bone bearing layer and uh, we hit the jackpot and we essentially found the entire back half of, of Spinosaurus, um, including about 80% of the tail of Spinosaurus. And it was really when we excavated the tail that I knew that, um, you know, we were going to rewrite the, the paleontology textbooks because the tail was utterly unique. We'd never seen anything like this um, before in another dinosaur. Um, essentially, the tail looks like a giant paddle, right? Um, so even on the tail bones, they're very, very long spines. And, um, and at the, uh, on the underside of the tail, they're also long bony projections, we call those chevrons, which are also unusually long. And so if you take those two things together, you get this, this paddle-shaped tail, which would have propelled this animal through the water. So um, we realized that this was an animal that was not just, you know, kind of sitting in shallow water and, you know, waiting for fish to swim by, maybe, uh, you know, like a heron or something. Um, this was an animal actively pursuing prey in the water. If you look at a reconstructed skeleton of Spinosaurus, we actually just unveiled one in a big um, exhibit in Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago, um, then you know you can tell that this is an animal really at home in the water. But the, the thing with anatomical adaptations is that you know there will always be some alternative interpretation, right? Um, and that's kind of the nature of science, but sometimes it's, you know, um, you know, someone might say, well, you know, I think this tail was not used for propulsion. It was used to play ping pong. You know, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> you can come up with all sorts of ideas and they might not sound very plausible, but it's, you know, the animal is extinct, right? And so, you know, uh, and that's where the internal bone structure um, comes in. That's that's so cool. Thank you. So, Rocky, do you have anything you want to ask? Sorry, I've been I've been hogging. <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> so let's talk research strategies. How did you get started? What was the first step? Well, so for this particular paper, um, you know, we, um, we had looked at the internal uh, structure of Spinosaurus bones before, and we, we noticed that they were unusually dense. And, you know, we speculated that that was probably an adaptation for a life largely spent submerged underwater, right? Because, um, you know, this is uh, something we see in some living animals. Uh, but then, you know, as I said, we published uh, papers on the tail and, you know, different aspects of the anatomy. And um, there was still a, a minority of people saying, well, you know, I don't know if this thing was really aquatic, maybe it was more like a grizzly bear or a heron or what have you. And, um, you know, as I said, you look at the anatomy, it's nothing like a heron. You know, <laughs> wading birds have very, very long legs and they're very, very different in many different uh, aspects of their anatomy. If we find a clear signal in, in, you know, that links bone density to what we call subaqueous foraging, so, you know, underwater foraging, that there's really not much you can, you can argue then, you know. And so that's what we did. And we assembled this huge data set. And this was, this was work that was largely uh, uh, performed by 
my uh, good friend and colleague, uh, Matteo Fabri, um, who was then at, at Yale University, is now at the Field Museum. And, you know, we had to get images from, from different museums. We had to look at uh, a number of specimens ourselves. And it became pretty clear that, yes, high bone density is a really good sign for aquatic habits. Um, so in many uh, long-necked sauropod dinosaurs, for example, we also have evidence for air sacs that extend through large parts of the skeleton. And, you know, there's a lot of weight-saving strategies there. Um, in fact, in some sauropods, if you kind of cut open their, um, you know, their uh, neck bones and, and, and you look at the cross-section, um, it's, it's, you know, mostly air, right? So, so that's kind of, you know, so you see some increase in bone density in the limb bones, but not in the rest of the skeleton, really. Whereas in animals like Spinosaurus and other largely aquatic animals, uh, we really see that the entire skeleton is, uh, you know, heavier because of this increased bone density, right? And so, you know, we looked at all of these uh, animals, penguins, hippos, alligators, what have you. Um, and we found a pretty clear signal that Spinosaurus really was essentially a diver, an animal that spent a huge amount of time under the water. Um, and the interesting things we found was also that Spinosaurus was not the only one. Spinosaurus has a, a relative in, uh, in the UK um, uh, called Baryonyx. It's my favorite uh, dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cool dinosaur. And, you know, I, I just saw Baryonyx a few days ago at the Natural History Museum. That's so um, cool. And Baryonyx has uh, long, elongate, slender jaws. It belongs to the same group of dinosaurs. It's also a Spinosaurid dinosaur. Um, but it lived uh, a pretty long time before Spinosaurus. So it was quite interesting to see that Baryonyx also um, came out as uh, essentially much of a diver uh, with unusually dense bones. Um, and so that means that these... Um, you know, this, this adaptation for full submersion essentially um, goes way back in the Spinosaur um, family tree, uh, which, is, which is pretty cool. Um, so we have at least two dinosaurs now that really spent a lot of time in the water. Can you just explain again how bone density varies for deep diving species versus what a shallow diving species would be, whether their extent or not? If you're only a very occasional, um, you know, swimmer, you just... Um, you know, uh, spend a, a little bit of time in the water, then you don't really have a particularly strong pressure, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have some animals that are, you know, some of these terms are also not very clearly defined. You know, we have terms like semi-aquatic and aquatic, you know. Um, it's, it's a little tricky sometimes, right? I mean, we have uh, things like whales. It's pretty obvious what they do. But then we have animals like otters and hippos and so on, right, that spend mm -hmm. a lot of time in the water but they're not, you know, quite like whales. And, um, and we have this across different groups, you know, we have everything from sea snakes to, you know, alligators and penguins and so on. Um, so um, if you're just an occasional uh, swimmer, it's, you know, you don't really have any big con constraints. Um, you know, when you dive, you know, you're just going to be, you know, um, uh, pushed back to the surface, right? But if you spend a lot of time underwater and you're, um, submerged, then, you know, the laws of physics are just, um, will apply to any organism. And so one of these laws is just density and, you know, the ability to stay submerged underwater, right? And so, uh, and we know, for example, mostly from mammal studies, that uh, these animals have dense, you know, really compact bones, 
um, which help in buoyancy control and help these animals to stay submerged, right? Um, so this only really applies to animals that would, you know, hunt for food underwater or, you know, just spend a lot of time submerged. Um, if you're not, then you don't really need this uh, very specialized adaptation. Um, and that's why the idea of Spinosaurus just being an animal that kind of, you know, just wades into shallow water like a heron and kind of, you know, maybe toys with the idea of, of catching fish that swim past just doesn't fly, right? Because we have this specialization inside the bones. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, from a field standpoint, is it easy for colleagues to accept and get excited regarding research like this? Um, I can imagine an uprooting of such a widely accepted assumption can be rocky. The, the thing is, in science, you can, you know, I mean, those are the really exciting moments when you can really kind of, you know, rock the boat and challenge, um, you know, established wisdom, so to speak. Um, but of course, there's always, you know, some pushback. It's, it's, a, it's a relatively small number of people at this point, because, you know, it's, it's so many different lines of evidence now. I mean, you know, as I said, if you look at the skull of Spinosaurus, it has fish eating written all over it, right? Super specialized, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you look at the rest of the skeleton, you look, look at the hind limbs, you look at the paddle tail and so on, you kind of go like, okay, all right. This is pretty um, strong evidence. But then now that we have this, this evidence from bone histology, I think, um, you know, it's uh, um, a very convincing case. We do have um, even more information. Um, you know, we, we're working on additional fossils of Spinosaurus, and this is going to be published, um, you know, in the next year or so. And I can tell you there's even more evidence coming. That's um, so exciting. So, it's like a sneak yes, peek. So, and, and of course, Spinosaurus <laughs> also lived in this environment. It's not just about the, the animal itself. Spinosaurus lived in a place where um, you had an incredible diversity of fish, you know, including some really, really big SUV-sized coelacanths and, you know, other, you know, river giants. So there was really an abundant food supply, even for a giant 50-foot-long tail-backed water-loving dinosaur. Another really cool thing about this project is that with this evidence from bone histology, other paleontologists can go and look at fossils in their collections. And who knows, they might, you know, because now even if they only have a couple of bones of a dinosaur, they can look at the internal bone structure and they might go like, huh, you know, the, the profile of this bone, you know, it's very dense, looks like this too could be um, a largely aquatic dinosaur. So I'm sure Spinosaurus and Baryonyx are not going to be the last ones. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how this huge team came together and uh, how you all worked together to get this final study? Sure. Um, I mean, I kind of have a core team of colleagues I've been working with for, for a number of years, um, uh, including some colleagues in, uh, uh, based in Italy. And uh, we've always worked really well together. So, you know, when I put together my expedition team, you know, I, I, I included them, of course. Um, and uh, but I also realized that this was a really big project. And sometimes, you know, one of the things as a scientist, some of the things you also have to do sometimes is just admit that, you know, I think I'll need some some help. I'll need a different kind of expertise on this project. And so we reached out to um, two colleagues at Harvard University, um, Stephanie Pierce, 
uh, who's done a lot of work on, you know, digitizing fossils and making ancient, some of the first animals that, you know, moved onto land, you know, kind of make them walk in a computer essentially. And I've also reached out to George Lauder, also at Harvard University, who's basically um, the, uh, the, the, you know, the Yoda of aquatic <laughs> locomotion, you know, he's just, you know, he's just Mr. Aquatic Locomotion. No, I got people from, you know, biorobotics and, you know, the world of fish biology on board of, you know, for this project. And it worked out really well. Um, and then uh, I also had, um, you know, one of my colleagues is a, a really good geologist. So, you know, and uh, we needed that kind of expertise as well to really understand the world spinosaurus lived in. Um, and I also have uh, several colleagues in Morocco where we excavated this fossil um, and we're working very closely with them. Um, and I should add that the original fossils of spinosaurus are also deposited um, in a collection in, in Morocco now which was very important to us. Um, you know, it's, we're doing a lot of capacity building in our work, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, we don't do what some people call parachute science, where, you know, Western scientists just, you know, go somewhere in Africa, for example, take a bunch of fossils and take them out of the country. <laughs> um, we really have meaningful, long-term collaborative projects. And, um, you know, so as part of the Spinosaurus project, we also brought, you know, Moroccan students to the field and, you know, um, making sure that, uh, you know, this is a, a project that everybody can benefit from. That's so great. It's really cool that you have some community involvement, too, with the students. That's really, that's that would be such a cool opportunity. I wish, wish there was a Spinosaurus being discovered in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some cool dinosaurs in Utah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's one of the strange things we found. We found... Um, now, we know there are relatives of Spinosaurus in South America, uh, in Asia, in Europe. But for now, we don't really have any convincing evidence uh, from North America. Yeah, you said you're kind of uh, bringing in plenty of students. And uh, do you have any advice for aspiring paleontologists like myself? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are different routes into paleontology. You can go the geoscience route or the bioscience route, you know, so you can kind of you know, enter through the world of rocks or the world of biology. So biology is, I think, probably the most important subject um, if you're really interested in dinosaurs and kind of fleshing them out and reconstructing them and understanding what they were like as, as living animals. Um, so it, it takes, you know, it takes some time and it's not the easiest path. But then, of course, if you're successful, then it's pretty much, you know, I would say the best job in the world. <laughs> Um, what, when was it that you realized you had a passion for paleontology and it was something you wanted to be involved in? Well, when I was four or five years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I started with a book and, um, and I knew then that it would be a dream job, you know, because you go like, okay, so I get to travel to far flung corners of the world. I get to experience real life adventures with sandstorms and snakes and scorpions. And, you know, you get to go to these exotic places you get to resurrect dragons from deep time um you get to work on living animals you know to better understand extinct ones um and you know i that i was just hooked and 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 decided there and then that i would be a paleontologist and um i've never really regretted that decision could you give us just a a little hint at what some of these future studies could be 
just well, regarded. Well, uh, okay, I'll give you I'll give you two hints, right? So um, because there's a number of different projects, and I could tell you, you know, but I'll give you a couple. So one of the projects, one of the many projects we're working on right now, um, deals with um, giant flying reptiles. Okay. Hmm. Um, the other project, um, it's a really, really big discovery we made. And this discovery is so big in every possible meaning of the word. Um, it's so big that you can see it from space. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you have How's that intrigued. for a cliffhanger? Yeah, that's a good cliffhanger. You wanted, you wanted a hint. So you've you definitely spiked our interest. Any idea when you're going to be publishing any of this? Well, probably um, in the next uh, year, oh. so 2023. That's so exciting. That's so cool. Do you have a favorite dinosaur? I'm just curious. Is it is it a Spinosaurus or do you have a different one that calls well, your name? I mean, well, Spinosaurus is obviously a very special one just because of <clears throat> because it's kind of rewriting the textbooks and it's you know doing so many incredible things. But you know there are many cool dinosaurs out there. It's difficult to pick one. You know, there's a cool or I really like from South America, Carnotaurus, which is a predatory dinosaur with horns. Um, there's some big plant-eating dinosaurs I really like. Um, it's difficult to pick one, but obviously Spinosaurus always has a special place in my heart. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. It means so much, and it was so interesting and so cool to talk with you. Sure. You're very welcome. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts from. Our producer is Claire Scott, our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud, and I'm Reagan Edelman. Thanks for listening, now go have big ideas.